0: So what's up everyone? My name is Jordan. I am one of the pastors here at Renaissance and major shout out to everybody who's here, especially those who are with us for the first time. Um, We are really excited to have you uh, be with us today as a part of our community. Now, one of the things I've realized over the last couple of decades is that life is a three-way struggle. We struggle with ourselves. We struggle with God and we struggle with other people. I struggle with myself, I don't know if you're the same way as me, because I have great goals for my life, I have standards for my life, and no matter how much I know my goals and I know my standards, and I'm not talking about career goals, I'm talking about life goals, I just seem to always fall short. Now I know I'm not alone because in the scripture, a man named Apostle Paul says this in Romans 7.15, and it's one of the realest scriptures in the Bible, he says this, For I do not understand what I am doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, what Paul is getting at here in the scripture is this struggle we have with ourselves. This is not a license to just do whatever. What Paul is highlighting is that the essence of Christianity is that it's not a self-improvement guide, because if it were then the struggle with yourself would be insurmountable. What Paul is basically saying is you and I don't just need Jesus to be our teacher. You don't need Jesus to be your professor. You need Jesus to be your savior. One of the things I've realized by God's grace over these last 20 years is that Jesus is better at saving than I am at sinning. And one of the things that I've realized is in the times where I felt trapped, hopeless, like I had nowhere to turn, To lift your hand up and to ask him to lift you up out of the pit is an amazing feeling to be pulled up out of it. And so the struggle that I have with myself is not unique. I I know that you and I uh, are the same in that regard. Now, we don't just struggle with ourselves, but if we were to keep it all the way live, we struggle with God. Here's why I struggle with God. I struggle with God because I doubt his wisdom and I'd rather be in control. This side, y'all not being honest. Let me go to this side right here. I doubt God's wisdom. I don't want to, but I do. When things come into my life, it feels like an alien invasion, and it feels like this is just unnecessary. I wouldn't let this go on for this long, and I really, truly do want to be in control. In my brain, in my very infinite, I mean, very finite brain, I think that if I had control, things would just be better, that I would have more peace, that I would have more joy, that my life would be the way that God wanted it to be. Over the years, I've realized that the most difficult prayer to pray is the Lord's prayer that Jesus instructs us to pray every single day, to pray that God's kingdom would come in your life. God's way of doing things, not your way of doing things, would come. It would actually materialize in the flesh in your life. And that God's will would be done in your life. Not your will, but God's will would be done in your life. That is a terrifyingly scary prayer because I don't always know what God's will is for my life. I know what scripture reveals as God's good and perfect will, but there's so many parts of Jordan's life that I just don't know how much pain and how much discomfort God is going to allow me to go through on the way to getting to his will. So that's just a painful thing. And I struggle with God because in my prideful self, I doubt his wisdom and I want to be in control. But I'm comforted and really challenged by Isaiah 55. Isaiah, the prophet, God is speaking through him, and he says, this is God speaking. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Now, nonetheless, this definitely, as true as it is, it's still difficult. Now, one of the ways to be sure that you are in relationship with the God of the Bible is this, that frequently and routinely, God calls you to do things that you would not have ordinarily done on your own. How is it that God's ways could be that much higher than your ways and uh, his thoughts higher than your thoughts? And conveniently, that's amazing. God just wants me to do what I was going to do anyway. Uh, That's actually one of the best ways to know that we are uh, really just we are our own gods. The Jesus we are serving is actually just us, just a little bit nicer. So we struggle with ourselves because we're inconsistent. We don't live up to our own standards, let alone God's standards. We struggle with God because we doubt his wisdom and we'd want to be in control. But today what we're talking about is not just our struggle with ourselves or our struggle with God. Today I want to talk about our struggle with other people. We struggle with people because people be in. <laughs> people are messy. Some of y'all came to church today with that messy person. Don't look at them right now, please. <laughs> Don't elbow them. Don't do none of that. Just look forward. Look at me. Look straight at me. Eyes on me. We're going to get through this together. And people are messy. Um, and I've realized over the years that people are messy for a number of reasons. Two of those reasons are sins and wounds. Now, over the past probably a couple of decades, that word sin has been so demonized and used um, really harshly at people, and, want, and people want to discard that word. And essentially, what sin means is to miss the mark. To be a sinner does not mean that you are as bad as you could be. It does not mean that. To be a sinner means that there is a bullseye and that you will never hit it. You will always veer to the left or to the right of it. Part of the reason why we need salvation from Jesus because we we're prone to wander. I was uh, singing a hymn last week, and it's, it said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. If you're honest about your life, you, you'll notice that in our lives. So some of the challenge with dealing with people is that they're sinners. They're, they're always just missing the mark. They're over-promising, and they're under-delivering. They're not behaving in the way that you would want them to because they're not behaving in the way that they would want them to. But we're too reductionistic. Not everything wrong with people is that they're a sinner. There's also a huge category called wounds. And over the last number of years at Renaissance, we've been trying to attach the way that you have grown up, your story, the wounds that you have suffered, to a part of your faith story. So for many of us, for many of you in this room, you know, I'll say it like this. I was reading through the the website formerly known as Twitter, I don't post that no more, but I still got some bookmarks, and um, there was this quote that I loved from an author. He said, Christian fundamentalism pushes everything into the sin category. Modern secularism pushes everything into the wounds category. Both are far too simplistic to address what's going on. Now, wounds are the things that have happened to us at the hands of caretakers, friends, family, foes, enemies, and When you encounter, when you have been wounded, this is what happens. You don't don't operate in the the optimal way. So if you're running and you sprain your ankle, you won't be able to walk or to run in the optimal way because you have been wounded. There's a wound that has happened. And in order to be able to, to operate well, you need to heal yourself or to be healed from that wound. One of the most tragic Things about modern Christianity and modern discipleship is that we want it to live 100% in our heads, and we do not give Jesus access to some of the most difficult parts of our lives. We'll come to church, we'll sing the songs, you know my name, we'll sit there and we'll cry, but there's parts of our story we'd rather hold back, even from God Himself. Truth be told, we want to hold it back from ourselves. And part of the challenge in dealing with people who have been wounded is they will not behave in the way that they should optimally because. They're wounded. You're wounded. I'm wounded. You know, there's a scripture in the Bible. One of these days, we're going to do a whole sermon on it. It's a question that Jesus asks this man who's laying by the pool. He's in need of healing, and Jesus comes to him and he asks him the question, Do you want to be healed? Most of us would think that's a stupid question. Like Jesus, he's been sitting here trying to get healed for decades. Of course, he does. I think Jesus, by extension, asks us that question as well Do you want to be healed? Do you want to go through the process it would take for you to be healed? Not everyone does. And so, the challenge of dealing with people who are messy is that we are not just recommended to love them, we are commanded to love them. Matthew 22, uh, the scripture says, When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together, and one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him Teacher, which command is the greatest? Jesus said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Now, if you're paying attention, the man asked Jesus which one command was the most important, and Jesus gave him two because they're not separable. As James says, it is impossible to love a God that you have never seen, but you don't love the person in front of you that you have seen. There's another scripture where Jesus makes loving people the mark of what it means to be a follower of him. Jesus was talking to his disciples, and he says, by this will all people know that you are truly one of my disciples if you love one another. Jesus knew that being loved by God and loving God was the fuel to loving other people. And then these are two inseparable commands. Why is that? Because if you truly love someone, you will also love who they love. If you truly love God, you will love the people that God loves. You know, my mother has a spiritual gift of encouragement. And um, I say that very seriously. She is uh, blessed by the best to encourage people. If you're ever feeling down about yourself, about your outfit, go talk to my mother. She'll make you feel better. And she's a naturally positive person that truly, genuinely does see the best in people, and it is a gift. Um, But I'll never forget the first time my parents met my wife, and they were just so happy for me. And I'll never forget the way my mother saw my wife after like 10 seconds of meeting her. She just saw the best in her, and she just like loved her immediately. We were at brunch, and she was like, oh, my God, look at the way she's cutting the French toast for your niece. (laughs) It's perfect squares. Is she a chef? Is she a chef? Did she go to culinary school to to learn how to do that? Her heart was instantly for her because her heart was for me. How is it that you and I can say we love God, whom you've never seen, you've never laid eyes on him, but you don't love the people that are right in front of you? And so with God fueling us, with the gospel that compels us, You and I could be people who learn what it means to love people. One of the biggest obstacles in front of us today, though, is that we don't even know what loving people actually looks like. Most of us have a version of love that is either created by Disney movies or makes you a martyr. The Disney movie version of love is that love should make you feel good. And if it doesn't make me feel good, then I don't want no parts of it. I was talking to a couple. They were trying to get married and this is why couples ask Lester to do their premarital counseling now. <laughs> and they were like, I was like, oh, like, what do you love about each other? And they were like, oh, my God, he makes me feel like this, and she makes me feel like this. And I was like, well, you don't love them. You love you. You love the way they make you feel you. Seriously. <laughs> You've gone on and on for, like, five minutes. And I talk too down on puppy love, people. Puppy love is good. You should, you should enjoy it if that's where you are. <laughs> <laughs> I am not there anymore. I haven't been there for in, a, in a long time, but... <laughs> People have the puppy love relationship with a lot of different people and institutions. Some of y'all got puppy love with Renaissance. Renaissance is so amazing, oh my God. <laughs> that sermon today, Pastor, was right for me. My community group was so incredible. This crew that I went to was so amazing. And essentially, the version of love that we have constructed in our minds is something that always makes us feel good. But what if your community group is not giving you anything? What if the crews are not serving you? What if you have to serve them? That is the measure of love that we will see. Another version of love on the other side makes you a martyr, which means you have no boundaries, you have no limitations, and you try to give all of yourself all the time to every person, and after three minutes, you will be no good to anybody. That's not what we're talking about today. Boundaries are a beautiful thing. So we're going to turn to a portion of Scripture in Galatians that I think is a snapshot of what it means to truly love messy, difficult people. What is required from you to love messy and difficult and normal people? Now, sometimes Scripture gives us commands and instructions. Do this like this. Other times, Scripture gives us accounts and stories from which we can extrapolate truths that I think God wants us to abide by. So we're in Galatians 4, 12 through 20. It's written by a man named Paul. He says this, I beg you, brothers and sisters, become as I am, For I also have become as you are. You have not wronged me. You know that previously I preached the gospel to you because of a weakness of the flesh. You did not despise or reject me, though my physical condition was a trial for you. On the contrary, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. So then, have I become your enemy because I told you the truth? They court you eagerly, but not for good. They want to exclude you from me so that you would pursue them. But it is always good to be pursued in a good manner and not just when I am with you. My children, I am again suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be with you right now and change my tone of voice, because I don't know what to do about you. Now, this part of the scripture in Galatians is Paul not just as an apostle or a teacher. This is Paul the father. This is Paul the man who loves this group of people, and they have gone astray. So if you haven't been following us in our series on Galatians, Galatians is a letter written to a group of churches that were going through a major controversy Paul sees this group of people whom he loves, and they were drifting from the truth. They were drifting from what God wanted from them. Some of you know what this feels like, to be in relationship with someone who is drifting in a, different, in a direction that you know is harmful for them, and you want to grab them by the shoulders and shake them back into reality. Maybe it's someone who's making terrible financial decisions or relationship decisions, and you see them going in the wrong direction. Paul here is is engaging with something similar. They are being seduced by this heresy that's going on in the early church, and Paul is concerned for their souls. The gospel is at stake. Their relationship with God is at stake to follow false teaching in the early church. So Paul compassionately and passionately writes them this letter to correct the error, but not just to correct the errors that they were making theologically, but to address them heart to heart. So Paul does a couple of these things, a couple things in the Scripture that I think highlight for us what love is. Number one, loving people begins with empathy. Loving people begins with empathy. Empathy, depending on where you are in life, might be something that is either all-consuming and it feels like uh, it's too much being asked of you, and if that's the case, it's probably because your boundaries are not good enough, that you're giving up too much to too many people. Or for other people, you look at it like it's something beneath you. It's not something that serves you. It's, it's not helpful. But empathy, essentially, is the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. Empathy is this ability. It's a skill to understand and to share the feelings of another. Very quickly, this does not mean that you share the experience of another. It means that you are able to share the feelings of another person. Uh, years ago, I was talking to a mentor of mine, and this was right after George Floyd happened, and I was just really just disgusted with many pastor friends that I had, I thought were friends at least, and um, I was just really disgusted by the lip service they were paying to racism in America. And as one particular pastor I was talking to my mentor about, and I was the same man, like talking to him was like a theological argument. Like this dude just got murdered in the street, and he's out here having like theological debates about the finer points of law and jurisprudence. And I was like, this is ridiculous. And my mentor, very godly man, stopped me uh, in my tracks and said, Jordan, that brother is as shallow as a kiddie pool. I bet you he can't even feel his own wife's pain. Do you think he's going to be able to experience and feel the pain of black Americans, tens of millions of people in the country who he doesn't know? And so what he was getting at was this. Since he had no ability to experience his own feelings and his own emotions, he couldn't experience the pain of someone else. Empathy does not mean that you have gone through the exact experience. It does mean that you have successfully, healthily, wisely navigated through your own issues, your own emotions, so that when something comes up in someone else's life, you know what it feels like. Not specifically that you have gone through that scenario, but you know what it feels like to be sad, to be angry, to be afraid. And you join them in the feeling of sadness, of anger, of fear, of happiness, you know, One of the things that is extremely apparent very quickly in talking to someone, particularly when you're going through pain, is whether or not they have gone through pain. Like, gone through it, not try to go around it. They don't say little silly things. They don't offer you little quotes that go on refrigerators. They sit with you, they're able to handle your pain because they were able to handle their pain. And one of the ways that you and I could be people who love people well, this is kind of paradoxical is, you love yourself well. You know what's going on in your own world. If you can't handle your own anger, how can you handle mine? You're just gonna to try to dismiss it as quickly as possible. If you can't handle your own sadness, you're gonna to try to dismiss mine as quickly as possible. You don't know what it feels like. One of the exercises that we do here at Renaissance is um, something called emptying the emotional jug. Every time I say it, I know that there's 83% of people who are never going to do this, and I hope to say it enough times that you would actually put this into the practice of your spiritual formation. Emptying the emotional jug, jug, it's like a jug. So imagine that your life is this container, and inside of this container, there's all of these emotions. There's anger, there's, there's sadness, there's fear, there's happiness... And emptying the emotional jug is an exercise where you empty the emotional jug. Um, And um, you first start with anger and what am I mad at? And you spend some time asking yourself the question, what am I angry at? You don't try to validate it with scriptures and put nice phrases on top of it. You just ask yourself the question, what am I angry at? And then you move on to sadness. What am I sad about? And you sit there with that. Then you go into fear. What am I anxious about? What am I afraid of? And you sit with that. And then the last one is what am I happy about? So the four components are mad, sad, anxious, glad. Mad, sad, anxious, glad. Now, it, one of the things I've, I've learned about this is Jordan will set a timer, will say for 20 minutes, I'm not going to let Pastor Jordan into the room because Pastor Jordan's going to have a sermon out of this. Jordan Jordan needs to feel this. And unless I can feel the weight of these emotions, I will never be able to be empathetic to you. Now, there's two types of people when it comes to emotions. One of my mentors says this. With our emotions, we tend to, our emotions are like kids on vacation. You can't put them in the trunk or on the driver's seat. (laughs) And we tend to go to one of these extremes. Some of us just want to stuff them down. We want to throw them in the trunk, push them aside because we say this is not helpful for us it might be helpful, it might not be helpful, but you don't even know because they're locked up in the trunk. The other extreme is to put them in a driver's seat and to say, because I feel it, I'm gonna follow it wherever it takes me, and that is also a mistake. We need to recognize what they are, know them for what they are, because the very act of feeling your emotions creates you, makes you to be an empathetic person. And check this out, Jesus was full of empathy. One of my favorite scriptures in John 11, Jesus Uh, is told that one of his friends, Lazarus, was sick. Beautiful scripture. It says that Jesus hears his friend is sick and then waits where he was for four days. So Jesus just stays where he is for four more days, knowing that his friend is going to die and he was going to raise his friend Lazarus to life. But his friends don't know that. By the time Jesus arrives, Lazarus has died, and the caravan comes out to meet Jesus, and they're sad. They're weeping now, Jesus knows exactly that, like, yo, in 25 minutes, everybody's going to be partying. It's going to be the best time of everybody's life. But he sees their tears, and Scripture gives us this one quote. Jesus wept. He was able to understand and to share in their feelings, even though he knew he was going to raise them, raise Lazarus from the dead. He didn't stop them and say, oh, dry your tears, dry your tears. I'm going to raise them from the dead. Watch what I do real quick. Jesus was empathetic. And if you're going to love people, You need to do the hard work of your own emotional health so that you can develop the skills and the tools to be able to feel feelings, period, because you will never be able to feel someone else's, join them in where they are unless you know your own. Now, this is especially true for anybody in relationships who wants to be in relationships. Most of the time, people stay at the surface level having arguments about the Christmas travel schedule, and the real real issue is you don't want to disappoint someone in your family. And you can't get to the heart of the issue the actual heart of the issue because you don't know what it feels like to be afraid to have conversations because you've stuffed down your own fear so much, um, you don't know what it means, to, what someone else is experiencing to feel fear as one example. If you want to do your relationships a blessing, make sure that you develop and nurture empathy. We cannot love people without it. Paul says it like this. He says, I became like you. That's what he says in verse 12. I became like you. In another scripture in First Corinthians, Uh, Paul says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew. To the Greeks, I became like a Greek. To those outside, I became as one who was outside. To those inside, I became as one who was inside. To the weak, I became weak. I became all things to all that I might by all means win some. Paul is talking about his expansive ability to relate to people exactly where they are. Many of us are not loving people because we're putting ourselves high up on a pedestal, We cannot feel where they are in their lives. So Paul was saying this because he learned to get inside of their questions. He learned to feel what their feelings were. He adapted his ministry to their problems, to their needs, their difficulties, and their issues. Now, this does not mean that Paul had no standard. This does not mean um, that Paul didn't have strong opinions. This book of Galatians and earlier chapters... Paul is like really dead serious about making sure everybody understands what the gospel is and what it's not. There's one verse where Paul says, like, yo, if anybody preaches any message other than what I've been preaching, let them be accursed. Even if it's an angel from heaven, let him be accursed. So this is not a person without a standard. This is a person with empathy. As you seek to love people, again, with boundaries, uh, making sure that you can feel where they are. All right, number two, this one will be shorter. Loving people well requires that you live with integrity, that you live with integrity. Verse 12, Paul says, I beg you, brothers and sisters, become as I am. Become as I am. The million-dollar question that this raises for me in my life is whether or not I am living a life that I actually want people to hit copy and paste to. Not Jordan on stage, I'm talking about the real Jordan, all of me. Are we living a life that we want other people to emulate? Integrity means that we are intentional about living out of conviction, vulnerability, brokenness, refusing to engage in pretense, being the same person in public as we are in private. You know, one of the harshest criticisms that Jesus would give anybody in the New Testament was to call them a hypocrite. It's the harshest criticism Jesus gave to anybody. And essentially, that term was going back to ancient Greek theater. And it was like highlighting this concept of these people who would wear painted masks. So on the outside, the expression would be whatever the mask was painted to be. But inside, the actor would hold their own life, their own story, their own emotions. And Jesus, when looking at these actors, would say, you know what y'all are like? Y'all are like these actors on stage. You present this one facade for everybody on the outside, but inside, I, I, I know the real you. Now, to live with integrity is not by any means to be perfect. It means that Jesus is the hero in our lives, and we wrestle honestly with the reality of life. Here's what Paul says in verses 13 through 15. He says, you know that previously I preached the gospel to you because of a weakness of the flesh. You did not despise or reject me, though my physical condition was a trial for you. On the contrary, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself." Most scholars will say that Paul uh, had a disability with his eyes. Uh, Some say that he was going blind. Um, Some of his letters that Paul wrote, actually, he had to speak them to someone who can transcribe them for him because his vision was was that poor. So Paul was not hiding his weaknesses from people. His life was full on display. But here's why Paul was living with integrity, and I think he was able to love people well and calls us to live with integrity. When we live our lives on full display, honestly, openly, And give people, really, an opportunity to help us even in our own uh, challenges and struggles. We let the world see that Jesus is the hero in our lives. And we can live a life where we model what it means to be dependent on Jesus and on other people. And we can call them to do the same. I'm going to say that last part again. A life of integrity at Renaissance will mean this. You live and model a life that is dependent on Jesus and on other people, and you call them to do the same. A very dirty secret about people in ministry is they get into this business to help people, and most people, many people, they are the worst ones of hiding parts of their own life. Don't look at people on staff like, see, I knew y'all was trying to hide something (laughs) from your life. This is a pastors. This is true of pastors for sure. And many people work in not profits They, they want to help people, but oftentimes they're, they're hiding pieces of their own life. If you want to live with integrity, it means that you model and live a life dependent on Jesus and on other people, and you call people to do the same. Paul modeled a life where he was dependent not just on Jesus, but also on other people in the community. Lastly, loving people requires sacrifice. Loving people requires sacrifice. If you truly want to help people, it's going to cost you pain. If you truly want to love someone who's messy, whose life doesn't follow the trajectory of perfection, it's going to cost you something. Again, I want to stress the importance of having boundaries. You cannot be everything to everybody. You are not superwoman. You are not superman. However, to the people that you are committed to loving, to love them well will require pain. Here's what Paul says. He says, my children... I am, again, suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. Now, Paul talks about one of the most painful things in society that I know secondhand, 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 uh, the pain of labor. I was uh, in the delivery room very fortunate to see my two sons born, and really, it's the most uncomfortable that I've ever seen any human being go, I mean, experience. So much so that my wife, to this day, really doesn't appreciate my impersonation of her when she was given birth. <laughs> I would not recommend doing that. But Paul talks about this. He, he highlights the pain of what it means to love them. I am deeply concerned that as a community of people, as a nation of American Christians, we are committed to loving people to the point of discomfort. And once it becomes uncomfortable, we peace out. Once your DNA group becomes uncomfortable, you walk away. It's too much. I didn't feel like doing all of that. Once service and community becomes too much, becomes a sacrifice, people walk away because it was too much. To love people well requires sacrifice. Again, the Disney version of love is all about what I can get from someone that is self-centered, that is not love. There's one quote by a man named Henry Nowen. I love what he says in his book, The Wounded Healer. He says, Jesus was a revolutionary who did not become an extremist since he did not offer an ideology but himself. Jesus didn't come with just a message. He came to give himself, and he calls you and I to do the same. You know, years ago when I was practicing law, I was doing family court, and uh, one of the things I did was juvenile delinquency defense work. And I would always tell my client's parents, the kid's parents, hey, if you show up to court with your kid, it will very likely be a, very, a better disposition for them. When a judge sees that they are responsible adult, adults in the life of the child, they're more likely to not try to put that kid in juvenile delinquency, in, uh, into juvie. And so this one mother, she took it to heart. And every single court date, she would make it her best to show up. The problem was her son kept on getting arrested, and uh, never forget one day she was saying, I, I can't keep on coming to court because I'm going to lose my job. His case continued over the months, and then one day I was walking out to, uh, they called our case, and I was walking out to stand in front of the courtroom, and I saw her in the waiting room just like completely knocked out, laid out in the corner. She finally got up and she walked towards the, court, uh, the courtroom and we were talking. I was saying, hey, have you had a, you know, is everything okay? And she was saying, oh, I lost my job. And this woman with a master's degree, the only job she could get at this time to support her family was to clean up buildings overnight. And so since I lost my job and since I was working all night cleaning up buildings so that I could be here for my son, I'm exhausted. Instagram will tell you that love is a family vacation that it smiles and giggles and trips to the ice cream parlor. Nothing wrong with that, I love me some ice cream. But love, you tell me which one is love. The mom who's asleep on the bench because she refuses to let her son be alone? Or this perfectly captured and curated version of love that makes us feel good? Love requires sacrifice. This is the essence of the gospel. That love is proved, it's actually proved through sacrifice. If you're new to Christianity and you're like, I don't understand why Jesus had to die, here's why. Because God loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. God's love is proven not through the blessings he gives to you. It's proven through the cross, the willingness to which he was willing to go for you and for me. And you know what? You and I will be able to love people to the extent that we have received God's love for us. To the extent that we have received Jesus' love for us on the cross, his sacrificial love. Yo, if you were to read through the end of the gospel and see, like, Jesus' interaction with people who spit on him, who mocked him, and says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He was on a mission to go to the cross for you and for me to bring us back to God. And that is love. As John says, this is love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us and gave his son as a sacrifice for us. The cross compels us and brings us to this point. And my hope and my prayer for us is that we would be a people who learn to love empathetically, with integrity, and living sacrificially. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be here with my brothers and my sisters and to crack open a piece of scripture that is instructive and helpful for us. Would you make us people who are less self-centered and more God-centered and people-centered? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.